Well, friends, welcome again to Catalyst Church. We are honored that you would be here. If you, in case you were wondering what was going on with the mic earlier, I'm pretty sure it was my rugged good looks, but uh, we're not sure about that. So we think Jordan fixed it. Um, S.M. Lockridge, the great 20th century preacher, said that a sermon ought to do four things for you. Number one, a sermon should stretch your mind. That is, it should inform you. We are we are finite creatures coming to consider an infinite God, right? Our earthly faculties cannot contain heavenly realities. And so uh, a sermon ought to stretch your mind. It should inform you and it should instruct you, instruct you. Secondly, a sermon ought to tan your hide. That is, it should rebuke you and correct you. It should lead you to go in the way that you were going. And when you're not, it should lead you to turn around. Uh, a sermon, according to S.M. Lockridge, ought to warm your heart. It ought to remind you that the God who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence, the God who made you, loves you. He cares deeply for you. And it ought to, finally and fourthly, it ought to provoke the will. A sermon should challenge you to do what God wants you to do. I remember as a junior at CNU, we gathered for a prayer meeting in one of the dorms on East Campus. And one of the guys prayed that night. He said, God, may we never leave your presence unchanged. Well, so many years later, I have not forgotten that prayer. So a sermon ought to stretch your mind. It ought to tan your hide. It ought to warm your heart. And it ought to provoke your will. My aim in this sermon, our sermon this morning, is to accomplish those four ends with this great truth. The glory of Christ is the hope and the reward of the church. The glory of Christ is the hope and the reward of our church. And so our goal this morning is to behold that wondrous mystery and to reorient our lives on that great truth that Christ died for sinners. So over the next three weeks, we're going to look at how Jesus prays for the church in John chapter 17. So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning. And over the next three weeks, we're going to look at how Jesus prays for his church, how Jesus prays for us. And so if it's your first uh, Sunday and you are sticking for three, you, you timed it right. You can stick for the whole series. As we start this new season in the life of Catalyst Church, we wanted to start this season with our ear pressed firmly to the chest of Christ. We want to hear his heartbeat for us. We want to hear him praying for us. There's this very intimate scene in John chapter 13 where John the apostle, and he refers to himself as the apostle whom, or the disciple whom Jesus loved because he knew that Jesus loved him. But John shows himself as leaning up against Jesus. They're, they're, they're around a table. They're all gathered together. It's the Last Supper. Many of you have probably heard of it. And John leans over to the heart of Jesus so close that when Jesus speaks, nobody else can hear him. Only John. Because John laid his ear on the chest of Christ. We want to do the same thing. We want to lean our ear against the chest of Christ and we want to hear him. So Christian, let me just stop here. Let me pause and ask the question. Have you heard from Christ recently? Have you heard from him? Is your ear chest up to him? Are you opening up your word? Are you hearing from God? I know we're all coming from different places this morning on our spiritual journey. As I think over the... um the last seven years at Catalyst Church, I'm in awe of the people that the Lord has bought. And some people who have been walking with Jesus longer than I've been alive. 
right? There, there are some people, you know, Jesus longer than I've been alive and other people who are just now getting to know him. I remember tailgating at one of the CNU football games and we talked to a, a, a student over at CNU who had never read a Bible, never been to church. We've, we've had people here at Catalyst Church who are all over the map in the course of their spiritual journey. We had Sarah who said to me one day, hey, I think the Lord is calling me into missions, but I don't know enough. How can I know more? And we sat down and we opened up our Bible and just a couple of months later, she got on a plane to spend two years as a missionary in Germany. I, I can think of Cheney, who many of you know. Cheney's now uh, serving for two years in Southeast Asia. She just signed on for three more years. But many of you know knew Cheney before she was confident. And, and Cheney said, no, I don't, me, a missionary? I don't know. I mean, I can think of a lot of great people that would be missionaries. But me, I don't know. And you saw how the Lord uh, worked with her. I can think of Marcus, who we met as a junior. He was the quarterback over at CNU. And he started attending Catalyst uh, for the same reason that many young men start attending a Catalyst. And that's because of a young woman, Right? And Marcus all of a sudden got to know Christ and he got to get to know his Bible. And he and I were walking through Ephesians chapter two and, and he learned what it means to be, means to be saved by grace and not by works. And Marcus was baptized. Marcus is now in youth ministry up in Richmond. I can think of Matt, CNU grad student who came to Christ and, and kind of, kind of dancing on things, learning how it went. And, and, and I remember the very first time he took communion and my eyes just lit up. I was like, Matt, you, you weren't a believer, but now you're taking communion. Does, are, are you, you say I texted him after service, dude, what does that mean? And he was like, I'm in, I believe, I believe. People have come over the past seven years to Catalyst from all over the map on our spiritual journey. So friends, where are you at this morning? Is your ear to Christ? Christian, before we jump into our text this morning, I don't want you to miss this foundational principle. Christ is praying for you. He's praying for you. Yes, John 17 was a prayer that Jesus offered at a particular time, but Hebrews 7 tells us that he is still praying for you. He's praying for you. I love how Robert Murray McShane put it. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Christian, he's praying for you. He's praying for you when you don't think anybody else sees you. He's praying for you when you're hoping nobody else sees you. He's praying for you when you think all is lost. He's praying for you when you think you're on the mountaintop. He's praying for me right now as I preach. There were a number of times over the course of the past week where I just stopped in my office, stopped sermon prep and said, wait a minute, Jesus is praying for me right now. He's praying for me right now as I preach. He's praying for you as right now as you listen. He's praying for you as you invite that neighbor to church and you reach out and you say, hey, would you be interested in studying the Bible with me? Dads, he's praying for you as you lead your family and you try to decide disciple your kids. He's praying for you as you wrestle against the temptation to sin. He's praying for you as you open up your Bible early in the morning and you spend a few moments with your father in heaven. He's praying for you. He's praying for you in your triumphs and he's praying for you in your trials. Christian, don't miss this. Christ is praying for you. So as we listen to Jesus's prayer in John 17, let's turn our ears to, to Jesus's words and let's remember that we cannot treat flippantly or lightly that which Jesus prayed for. At least we can't do so without dire consequences. So let's give our attention to Jesus's prayer in John chapter 17, beginning in verse one. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, the main thrust and the theme of Jesus' prayer here in John 17 in these first five verses can be summarized in that simple little phrase, Father, glorify your Son. Verse 1 tells us, when Jesus spoke in these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and what did he say? He said, Father, the hour has come. At this point in John's gospel, we have seen in John chapter 1 the eternality and the deity and the divinity of Christ. He is God. We've heard Jesus uh, say the command, you must be born again. We saw Jesus turn water into wine and all the Baptists in the room got a little bit nervous, right? And said, what do we do with that? And he said, I can make you new as well. I can make you new as well. And what we find throughout the entire gospel of John is Jesus is constantly revealing his character and proving it by works. He's revealing his character. I am this. And he's, he's proving it by works. And now as we get into John chapter 17, the minor key is starting to play. The clouds are rolling in and the lights beginning to dim. And we can hear the ominous music in the background. Jesus in this scene, just prior to his crucifixion, addresses God as father. This is a tender moment of prayer. This is not Jesus with his chest puffed out saying, look at me, look at me. This is Jesus talking to his father. And he makes the declaration, the hour has come. He is confident in God's sovereign plan. All all throughout the gospels up until this point, Jesus had said, not yet, not yet, not yet. The hour has not come. And now he says, the hour has come. This is a confident prayer. There's something for us to learn there. You see, when you know God as your father, you love to pray. I believe it was John Stott or J.I. Packer, one of the two, who said that if you want to know whether or not a person is truly a Christian, figure out whether whether or not they know God as their father. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to know God as your father. When you know God as father, you love to pray. And when you know God as sovereign, you love to pray. That's how it works with Jesus. He knew God as Father, and so he prayed. He had a Father who was inclined towards his well-being, and so he prayed with him. He, he had a God who was sovereign and in control of all things, and so he prayed for them. And he prayed, Father, glorify your Son. Now let's ask the question, what in the world does that mean? What's Jesus getting at? Is this just some sort of irrelevant, doesn't have anything to do with me, uh, religious talk? Is this just sort of, uh, we call it Christianese, right? Language that we use in the church that is really confusing if you're not familiar with the church. Have you ever been to a church service and you're like, I have no idea what is going on, right? It's nice to be the pastor because even if I have no idea what's going on, nobody knows it. You all think I know exactly what's going to happen next. 
right? But I've been to churches before where I walked in and like, oh, we sit down, oh, we, st- we stand up and now we sit down. Okay, what do we do next? And oh, now everybody's reciting something together. I don't know the words. What is this, right? We've, we've all been confused in, in, in um, kind of religious circles in that way. We've, we've been there. Is that what this is? Is Jesus just talking sort of Christianese? Well, it's the revelation of the propitiation, the expiation of the uh, third heavens of the, like, what, what do you, what are you getting at, Jesus? This reminds me of a, uh, a car ride I had with a, a good friend of mine who works in the shipyard. We were going skiing for the day, and so we got in the car early that morning, um, and, and we're off. And, and this guy gets a phone call from the yard, and he picks up. And for 30 minutes at least, he had a phone call with somebody at the shipyard, and I did not understand one word. I was as lost as I could be, right? Um, is, is it in building 37 or 42? Oh, 54. Don't go there. Is it nuke or non-nuke? Okay, is it, is it, uh, what does it have to, and I, I was as lost as I could have been, right? Is that what this is? Is Jesus just using language and nobody knows what it is? Many today dismiss Christ because they think he's irrelevant. That's one of the reasons in this new season we're making it our aim to help people marvel at Christ in all of life. And after this sermon series in John 17, we're going to jump over to 2 Corinthians and consider what does it mean to marvel at Christ in all of life? And we've got one one Sunday where we're going to talk about what does it mean to marvel at Christ in my work environment? We want to help people marvel at Christ in all of life. We have a tendency not to marvel at Christ, but to dismiss him, to think that the gospel is good for my spiritual life, but it really has nothing to do with my private life. It has nothing to do with my workplace environment. It has nothing to do with my family But what is Jesus praying for when he says, Father, glorify your son? He's praying that God would turn all of the spotlights onto Jesus and make much of Christ. But who cares at the end of the day? Who cares about the glorification of Christ when our world is falling apart? Jesus, glorify your son Why didn't you pray that God would do something about the political tension and turmoil of our world? What are you talking about? Glorify your son. Glorify your son. Why don't you pray that God would do something about the racial divides in so much of our country and our world? Glorify your son. What are you talking about? Who gives, who who cares about the glory of the son when we're looking at militaries around the world jockeying for power and infringing on other countries? What does the glory of the son have to do with the financial pinch that many of us are feeling these days? Who cares about the glory of the sun? Jesus, what are you talking about? Who cares about the glory of the sun when some of us in the room are wrestling with, or we have family members who are wrestling with gender dysphoria or co-workers who are wrestling with gender dysphoria, and we're not even sure how to navigate some of this new world. What does it mean for me to be a man? What does it mean for you to be a woman? What do my sexual attractions say about me? Some of us are wrestling with mental illnesses that are undetected and they're unknown to the people around us, and we don't know how to start the conversation. Jesus, who cares about the glory of the sun? What do what are you talking about? Who gives a rip about the glory of Christ when you can't even get your feet on solid ground? Could you get any more irrelevant? Friends, seeing the glory of Christ is the only thing that will sustain you through life's trials. Your circumstances may never get better, but Christ can get sweeter. Your circumstances may never get easier, but your eyes can become more open to the goodness of the gospel. The glory of Christ 
is the hope of the church. Our hope is not that we would finally land the, 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 the perfect location, although, right? Our, our hope is not finally that somebody would come um, and, and financially support everything we need to do. Although, if you're here this morning, it is the Lord's will, right? Our hope is in the glory of Christ. Our hope is that at the end of all days, nobody will know the name of Catalyst Church, and we're okay with that. But people will know the name of Christ. The glory of Christ is the hope, is the hope of the church. We often sing the old hymn, Amazing Grace. Tis grace that bought me safe, has bought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Where can I find that grace? It is in the glory of Christ. Nowhere else. The glory of Christ is the hope of the church. The glory of Christ is the hope of the church. And that's why. Seven years ago in three weeks, on our very first Sunday morning, I stood in front of our congregation and said, look, at the end of the day, we don't want to tell you all of the things that you have to do to get to God. We want to help you marvel at what God has done in Christ to get to you. We want you to taste and see the goodness of Christ. The glory of Christ is his unique beauty. So Jesus is praying that God would shine the spotlight on Jesus in such a way that the world would see and you would see his unique beauty. And the means by which he's going to do this is the cross and the empty tomb. And so Jesus is praying for the glory of Christ. Let's not forget, we're asking the question, does my life line up with Jesus' prayer? Or am I passive in life towards that which Jesus pursued in prayer? Are you pursuing the glory of Christ in your life? Jesus' line of thought here seems to be that God has given the Son the unique authority to give eternal life to all that the Father has given him. That's what he says in verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all that you have given him. So Jesus and him alone has that authority. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. So God has a people he's given to Jesus and he said, I want you to give them eternal life. I want you to be the means of their salvation. Apart from you giving it to them, they'll never have it. And the substance of that eternal life is to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I remember in college volunteering for a youth group, and we had this event where we had to give them a Bible verse that, um, give the youth a Bible verse that meant something to us. And at the time, I was meditating on John chapter 17, and so I got, grabbed John chapter 17 verse 3, and I just started using that. And, and now when I go to weddings and if they have a Bible and they say, hey, highlight our Bible and pick out a verse, and this is the verse I go to. Zach and Kathleen, it's the verse I highlighted in your Bible. Last night, I highlighted in Chris and Alex's Bible. John 17, verse 3. I remember memorizing that and meditating on, on that. That this is eternal life. That they would know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's the only place in scripture where Jesus clearly defines eternal life. Which I appreciate that. Because we, in the Christian world, sometimes we'll have the same words, but different uh, different definitions, right? It's like we're using the same words, but different dictionaries. And eternal life is, is similar to that. If I were to ask each one of you, what is eternal life? No doubt each one of you would say something slightly different. And Jesus cuts through all of the confusion and says, it's this. It's similar to the word love. What does love mean to you? That's... One of my favorite things about being a youth pastor for six years was to ask uh, young ladies in middle and high school, do you have a definition of love? And I would, I would tell them on, on, when you go on that date, and he says, and he bats his eyes, 
I love you. You need to ask him, what do you mean? What is your definition of love? And don't move, don't let him go anywhere until he gives you a clear and compelling definition of love. Because if he doesn't have one, that means either A, he hasn't thought about it, or B, he's saying you're not worth thinking about it. And in either way, you need to drop him like a bad habit. What is love, right? What is love? In the same way, what is eternal life? What is it? Jesus is, God is saying, Jesus, I want you to give them this eternal life. I want you to open their eyes that they may see and know us. No one knows God in a saving way apart from Jesus Christ. An eternal life is to know the one true God, to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It is not merely the escapism of this world into an idealized heaven, at least not according to Jesus. That's the problem with the song, that has become popular in Baptist history, I'll fly away. And praise God for the song, right? If you enjoy it, wonderful, right? But we sing, I'll fly away. But according to scripture, you might fly away, but you're going to fly right back, right? Eternal life is not out there. It's to know God, the, uh, know God and to, the one true God, to know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is one of the things I appreciate so much about city life is their idea, their, their, their motto of heaven now, heaven forever. They don't want to wait till they die to come alive. I'm with them on that, right? And so Jesus goes on and he shows that the means by which that we take hold of this eternal life is by seeing the glory of Christ, the glory of the Son. You take hold of eternal life. Not by doing enough, not by getting your act together, but by seeing the glory of Christ. That's why we said we don't want to tell you all of the things that you have to do to get to God. We want to help you marvel at what God has done in Christ to get to you. That's why Jesus says, come to me, look to me, believe in me. Whoever drinks from me, Jesus in the gospel of John says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door through which the sheep enter. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and life. I am the vine. No one takes hold of eternal life apart from Christ. And so Jesus prays, Father, glorify your Son. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you by giving eternal life to all whom you have given him. I wonder if so marvelous a prayer has ever been cried by human lips as this, Father, glorify your Son. I think about every missionary we've sent out over the past seven years, and and by God's kindness, We've been able to send out seven full-time missionaries in seven years, and we're praying for number eight. Maybe you're in the room this morning, and the Lord's stirring your heart and saying, I want to get you to the mission field. Whether it's Blacksburg, Virginia, where uh, Katie and Taylor are serving, or whether it's Southeast Asia, where uh, Katie and Cheney and Andrew now are, are serving, or whether it's somewhere else, maybe the Lord's stirring your heart to missions. Every missionary we've sent out over the past seven years has had that prayer stamped on their hearts as they left friends and family for the mission field. The glory of Christ. And that's our prayer. The glory of Christ. This is our hope that Christ will, not might, he will be glorified. It is written one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our hope that Christ will be glorified. It is our hope and it is our reward. It's our reward. At the end of the day, it does not matter how many people know the name of Jeff Mingi. It does not matter how many people know the name of Catalyst Church. What matters is how many people know the name of Christ. 
It is both our hope and our reward that the Father is accomplishing his purpose of glorifying his Son. The church rises or falls on this great desire that Christ would be known. The great Baptist uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon stood in the pulpit at Metropolitan Tabernacle in London for the first Sunday when that building had been opened. And he said, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform should stand and as long as this house should be frequented by worshipers, should be the person of Jesus Christ. I can think of no greater proposal for catalyst than us than this. I would propose that no matter what room we meet in, no matter where in the world we might gather, the subject of the ministry of our house should be the person of Jesus Christ. Catalyst, let our ministry and all that we do be lockstep in line with Jesus' prayer. Father, glorify your son. Every sermon aimed at the glory of Christ, every song, every class, every prayer, every new and established relationship be aimed at this great end, the glory of Christ, that people everywhere might marvel at Christ in all of life. The glory of Christ is the reward of the church. It was the reward of North Riverside Baptist Church for years in this very location. For several years prior to 1951, there were many Baptists living in the subdivision of the city of Warwick known as Riverside. A census in that year expressed that there were, sev- there were several families in the area who expressed an interest in establishing a Baptist mission. That dream became a reality on November 2nd, 1952, when an organizational meeting was held. There were 74 present, of whom 42 signed to become charter members of the Warwick Baptist Mission. Formal organization as North Riverside Baptist Church came on January 4th, 1953 with 105 charter members, all aimed at the glory of Christ. You can see that as you look around this beautiful sanctuary and you trace the stained glass windows, they're not about the church, they're about Christ. You have the birth of Christ. You have the Christ child in the temple. You have the baptism of Christ. You have Jesus knocking on the door. You have Jesus inviting you, come unto me. And then you get over to this side and you have Jesus, the good shepherd. You have Jesus with the little children. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. The resurrection of Christ, which as Pastor Fred will point out to you, it's the only one where Christ is not, you don't have the image of Christ. Why? Because he is not here, right? And you have the ascension of Christ seated at the right hand of God. NRBC knew that the glory of Christ was her reward when just months ago she voted to gift this building to the City Life Church. Catalyst, let's not miss this. We stand on the, sho- on the shoulders, right, of some spiritual giants that have gone before us. We as a church are not an ends in ourselves. We're a means to a much greater end, namely the glory of Christ. Her, his glory is our reward. At the conclusion of this service, we're going to sing a song that points us to the glory of Christ. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Friends, the glory of Christ is the hope and the reward of the church. Is it your hope? Is it your hope? 
Is your aim in life to make much of Christ? Is it your reward? Friends, the glory of Christ is the hope and the reward of the church. Is it yours? In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's a meal in which we come together as a family and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal is for believers. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that you are among friends. The table, this meal is not for you. Christ is for you. So come not merely to the table, but come to, come to Christ by faith. As you see believers coming to the table, I'm praying that the Lord would stir in you a sense of jealousy that would lead you to come to Christ and partake in him. This is a time of reflection. As we come to the table, we are reminded that none of us deserve it. None of us deserve it. The question is, do we believe it? Do you believe what the cup and the bread proclaim, that Christ's body was broken for you, that his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins? This meal is a means of renewing our faith. And so, friends, let's pray that the Lord would use this meal to fan into flame a passion for that which Jesus prayed for. Father, glorify your Son. Christian, the glory of Christ is the hope and the reward of the church. Is it yours? Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you for the gift of the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. This gospel is the power of our salvation. This gospel is the power of our knowing you. God, none of us in this room know you because we deserve to know you. None of us in this room know you because we've gotten our act together. We know you because you've made yourself known in Christ. So God, I pray if there's anybody in this room that does not know you as their father, God, would you do whatever it takes in their life to bring them to a place where they see that Jesus is a bigger savior than they are a sinner all day long. And God, as we come to the table this morning, would you use this meal as a means of of, of fanning into flame the, the fire of our faith? Would you use this meal as a means of commissioning us and sending us back into the mission field, that we might go to our neighbors and to the nations to make Christ known. God, we give you great thanks for this new space. We give you great thanks for this new season. What what a gift it is to us. What a, what a gift and a breath of fresh air it has been to our church body. And we want to use this not as a means just to just to, to, to get fresh air, but as a means to point us back to the gospel. To remember well that Christ died for our sins. That's the good news that brings great joy to all people. That's our hope.